to CMIO Podcast, a show devoted to educating and informing those who are making healthcare easier for others. Whether you're involved with informatics, analytics, or new technologies that make the lives of our practicing clinicians better, this show is for you. My name is Dr. Mark Weissman. I'm a practicing physician, a CMIO, and the host of CMIO Podcast. Today, I'm bringing you the news to know for the week of July 27th. As usual, I have at least six, I probably, I've selected close to 10, I'll never get through them all, uh, articles, I'll read you a little bit and we'll give some commentary and I'd love your feedback on some of these as always. For those of you who do write in, I always appreciate it, I try to get back to as many of you as possible. The show has been growing, so sometimes it's difficult uh, because I also still do have a full-time job, but I will always make an attempt to get back to you, so thank you for writing in. First article comes out of the New Yorker, and this was July 25th, 2020 by Clifford Marks, America's Looming Primary Care Crisis. And I'm just gonna read you a couple of paragraphs from this. I think it's really interesting what's happening to primary care because of the pandemic. So this is a brief story about Beverly Jordan, who is a partner at a family medicine clinic in Alabama. Even though her practice received a lifeline from the federal government's Paycheck Protection Program, Jordan had to take a pay cut, reduce staff hours, and lay off two new physicians who were about to start work. For decades, healthcare was America's indomitable industry. While employment in other sectors, retail, manufacturing, construction, rose and fell with the business cycle, clinics, hospitals, and medical practices steadily added jobs. Uh, let's see, next line. And so I've always felt that. I always thought that healthcare was recession proof. We're seeing that not so much because when patients stop coming to the offices, that really hurt the independent practices, also hurt the employed practices, but they're a little more insulated. Next paragraph here says this was from a survey in May. It found that primary care doctors uh, nearly a fifth of them had temporarily closed their practices owing to the pandemic, and two in five had laid off our furloughed staff. And when three quarters of your volume disappears, you can't afford to keep the same staffing levels. You just, unfortunately, can't pay all that staff. So the staff will be furloughed, some of them, if they're able to, will jump ship. They will go to another practice if there's someone else in town who's hiring, which they may not be doing in the middle of this recession, but you could lose some very good people. And that's always a challenge in primary care, in particular getting good people who know your workflows that can help make you efficient. Uh, they go on to say here that vaccination rates for children have begun to fall. Patients are missing screenings that are proven to save lives. Prescriptions are going unfilled. Chronic conditions could worsen life expectancies could drop. Just interesting consequence to the pandemic here. Uh, last, this is just a little bit about the business as to why this is happening. Payers routinely reimburse healthcare providers for specialized procedures at high rates, but primary care visits, which might include chronic disease management, routine vaccinations, or smoking and dietary counseling, that generates lower revenues. This imbalance is due in part to the Relative Value Update Committee, which is known as RUC, R-U-C, an extraordinarily powerful group of doctors that advises the federal government on reimbursement rates for physicians. The RUC consists of 31 doctors convened by the American Medical Association. 
it is structured such that each specialty has an equal say. On the RUC, urology, thoracic surgery, head and neck surgery have individually about the same representation as all of pediatrics. CMS, which has final authority to set payment rates, almost always follows the recommendations of RUC. And so the implications of that is that, well, we pay specialists more than we do primary care doctors because there's more specialists out there. So the rates that get set always put their RVUs higher for the specialists, significantly higher. And so primary care is going to be at a disadvantage. Without either an increase in funding or a direct allocation aimed at primary care, it seems likely that many clinics will never receive the money they need to stave off closure. Now, the recommendation from this author, instead of continuing to reimburse providers through a fee-for-service system, the federal government could shift payment for primary care and similar specialties to a capitation model. Under the system, practices are reimbursed on a per-person, per-month basis, usually with some portion of the payment tied to quality measures, such as adjusted mortality and excess hospitalizations. For those of you who were practicing in the 80s, you'll remember capitation and not so fondly. Number one, most of us lost money in that setting. And number two is we had very little data that we could use to help understand our patient populations. And that's one of the reasons why I bring this article about is that maybe today we're better positioned for capitation, but most of these practices that we're talking about now, these independent primary care providers or not. They do not have access to the data that they need to effectively understand a capitated arrangement. Where are their patients going and how do they control the spend? And also patients don't always understand this arrangement. Right now they trust that when they're sitting in front of the provider, the provider's going to make the best decision for them based on the patient's best interests. In a capitated arrangement, the model is such that, well, if I ordered that really expensive MRI scan, that could be my summer vacation money because in a capitated arrangement, you're just getting X number of dollars and that's it to take care of that patient. So the more you spend, the less you get to take home. And doctors and patients found themselves in a antagonistic relationship where the patient feels that they need an MRI of their pinky and the doctor says, no, you probably don't. And the patients start to question the motives of the doctor. And that's tough. That's a difficult uh, position to be in with capitation. So I bring this article up because, number one, the pandemic is having tremendous impact on primary care practices. And as a CMIO, we need to be sensitive to that, understand what can we do to help especially if it's one of our employed providers, what data can we give them that helps them run their business? And some of that is operational data, some of that's financial, and some of it's clinical. But creating the dashboards that they need to run their business is really important. And the CMIOs, you definitely can help with that part. The other part to be aware of is that in these arrangements of, of capitation, there is that quality piece and whether that's adjusted mortality or hospitalizations, most primary care doctors do not know what their hospitalization rate is 
for their entire population. They may know for a certain pair, but they are unlikely to know what it is for their entire population. And that's another thing that we can do is start putting this data in the hands of, of our providers. And that will drive better results. Providers don't wanna see their patients getting admitted and readmitted, that they know something's not good that happens to their patient that makes that happen. So I've always found doctors to be invested once they see that data, but they have to understand it. They have to understand where they are in comparison to others in the area. And then they're of course will always say that their patients are sicker, so you need to be able to severity adjust the data. Next article. The next one comes out of Healthcare IT News, and this one was written by Mike Milliard, July 24th. The title Cerner and I think it's Holon, H-O-L-O-N, Holon, Partner on Decision Support Automation. So the aim here is to deliver needed contextual information directly to clinicians within their EHR workflow and eliminate the need to spend time combing through numerous different data sources for information that might inform care decisions. Holon's CollaborNet tool can detect provider workflow activity, it is able to surface relevant patient information and identify gaps in care in a display that runs alongside the patient chart according to the company, enabling a faster and less intrusive delivery of decision support. I don't know, I'm interested in your thoughts on this. You guys think it's gonna work? I have no clue what that's gonna look like. I, this sounds like a passive best practice alert. And as we know, those are very highly ignored. If there is screen real estate that you can put towards something like this, fantastic. If you have a second screen, that's great. Most of us don't have two screens in our exam rooms. We might in our personal offices, but we get into the exam room, not so much. So I'm wondering how much real estate is this tool gonna take up so that it can be visible and utilized? The other piece that I'm wondering about here is how in the world does it know where I am in my workflow and that I need to see this particular piece of information at the right time? If we can do that, fantastic. Right information, right time. Love that and right part of your workflow. I, I'm a little skeptical, but I haven't seen it, so I, I do need to reserve judgment here. I love the concept of where it's going. We know it takes five, 10 years for information to get from the bench, the research, to publication, into textbooks, into the hands of doctors, although I think that's significantly been reduced with now many of us getting our information off the internet and close to real time, but even still, Putting that information into practice, we know is a long delay. And if we could have someone put the right information in front of us at the right time, great. Even better if I don't have to maintain that database of information. Because as a CMIO, resources are strained and I can't keep up with all of the literature in every single specialty. And I know you can't either. So. It sounds cool if there's people out there delivering good, solid clinical decision support that works. We need to hear about that it works part before we would get too excited about it. Next one. This one also out of Healthcare IT News. From This one's from July 15th. It's about two weeks old now, but I missed it the first time around. BigQuery Omni, new from Google Cloud, enables analytics queries from AWS and Azure. So... I'll just read you a paragraph or two so you can understand what's going on here. But Google Cloud on Tuesday, that's oh, the week of the 15th there, announced the launch of its new BigQuery Omni multi-cloud analytics tools, 
which says it enables customers in healthcare and elsewhere to more easily query data stored in Google, Google Cloud, but also within Amazon Web Services and soon Microsoft Azure. It enables a more seamless connection between Google Cloud and other public clouds, according to the company, which allows healthcare clients to more securely run queries across Google, AWS, Azure via single interface without having to move uh, or copy data sets. Google Cloud points to recent Gartner research that shows more than 80% of respondents across industries using the public cloud were using more than one cloud service providers. That has them seeking less complex technologies, more consistent user experience, and lower costs to manage data across multiple different cloud service providers. The cost of moving data between cloud providers isn't sustainable for many businesses, and it's still difficult to seamlessly work across clouds. My two cents on this. I think most healthcare providers are locked into one cloud. I, I know we're not supposed to, to be honest, from what I'm hearing from experts, we are supposed to be able to be cloud agnostic, being able to pull your data out from one cloud and shift it to another, particularly so that they can't hold you hostage on price. And one may offer a service that you really like that someone else doesn't offer. I really like what Google is doing here. They are somewhat making the cloud more of a commodity because now it may not matter which cloud you use so long as you can pull the data out and do analytics on it. Not enough of an expert on the cloud to understand is there a cost when you're using something like this to pull data out of AWS. I'm, I'm gonna assume there's not a dramatic cost, otherwise this would not be something I think Google would even attempt. But we need to be flexible and nimble in healthcare. It's one of our weak spots, in my opinion. We all have these very expensive data centers that sit in the basement somewhere and probably another one offsite somewhere. And I can't wait to try to get out of the data center business myself. Personally, I think that's a direction our company should go in. Uh, not all agree with that, but I wanna learn more about it. I'm certainly interested now that uh, there's the potential to use different cloud vendors without tremendous penalty. All right. Next, this article came out of Annals of Internal Medicine. It's a clinical article, and it talks about asymptomatic bacteria. And I think this was, uh, they ran off just a couple of cases and this was July 21st issue. And so they talk about a patient that presents their 70 years old CHF, comes in with edema, shortness of breath. The urinalysis is positive for 300 leukocytes per high power field. The patient's completely asymptomatic. And yet, based on the urinalysis, most hospitalists, probably over 80% or 90%, I think they said here in the article, that they're gonna end up with a urine culture and that is not a urinary tract infection, and this patient's gonna get antibiotics and, and it's unnecessary. And then they go on and talk about a 75-year-old woman with diabetes that came in with chest pain, has no urinary symptoms, but a urinalysis is sent as part of an initial broad workup. Pyuria is identified on the urinalysis, ceftriaxone is started. The MI is ruled out, chest pain resolves, but she developed diarrhea now during her hospital stay, waiting for the E. coli susceptibilities from the urine culture to come back, testing for C. diff is negative, and she was discharged home now five days. Five days for a rule out MI, which you all know should be 23 hours or less. So that was all waste. And then 
the final case they go over here is an 85-year-old woman who came in with diabetes, chronic kidney disease, and dementia that came in with confusion. And so part of the workup for confusion in the elderly is to check urine. And there are some nitrites and some leukocytes on the urinalysis. And so they start her on antibiotics. She's better, she gets discharged, and then she comes back in a couple of days later with confusion and acute kidney injury. And this time they find out from the medication history, gee, the patient was on furosemide, which caused pre-renal azotemia. And that's probably what led to the altered mental status, had nothing to do with urinary tract infection. And they go on to say that a causal link between confusion and UTI has never been proved. A recent systemic review did not find sufficient evidence to link UTI and confusion. So why am I picking on this clinical article? Well, I'm doing that because there, this is an opportunity for where clinical decision support could come into place. So I went looking for, okay, clinical decision support around urinary asymptomatic uh, pyuria or bacteria and said, well, what does it work? Sort of, kind of. There was one study done around December of 2017 that showed that if you did an educational forum, as well as clinical decision support, as well as I think they had pharmacists calling uh, providers, and they then, the clinical decision support was in a passive mode. So it sounds like it was running somewhat uh, off to the side, not an invasive pop-up that you have to click through to get rid of. But one of the things they had to do to get this thing to work is you had to put in the indications for why you're ordering the urine. So they have to ask you, does the patient have symptoms? And that has to go into discrete data elements. And I think that that's where we run into some trouble because the doctors hate those things. I personally hate having to justify indications for why I'm ordering a culture or an antibiotic. But it's the only way the pharmacist can know if I'm using it correctly. And that kind of bothers me that we have to rely on that kind of oversight to get this done right. And the truth is, the data is sitting in the unstructured note. And that's where we should be getting it from. So I'm on a little bit of a rant right now. Yes, I think we should have oversight on antibiotic usage if it's being done inappropriately. And there's certainly plenty of data out there that says it is great. But don't make me as the doctor go click in check boxes when I may not be the doctor that's having a problem with this issue. There's uh, perhaps some, some new residents or some old doctors that haven't changed their practice, whatever it is, you want to target those people, not the doctors who are doing it right and you're making them do these order indications. The bottom line, I like reading about this stuff. I like staying current in the clinical pieces here. Annals of internal medicine is spot on. We should not be doing these urine cultures on people who are not symptomatic. I think we do it a lot as part of our initial workups. And maybe that was beaten to our head by our coders because they don't want to get hit with this, was it present on admission, admission kind of uh, issue. Whereas if that patient suddenly develops symptoms while they're in the hospital, well, now we're going to get flagged as having a intra-hospital urinary tract infection and that's a, a quality indicator. So I kind of get why we do it. It's defensive medicine. It's not the right medicine and clinical decision support can play a role. I'm not convinced how effective it is, even though there was that one study that said, yeah, it worked. 
does it work five years later or are you just bugging the doctors to keep clicking these indications and those who already needed to get the message have gotten it and now you're just bugging people. All right. Next article. This one, EHR Intelligence. It says EHR optimization health IT projects needed after the COVID-19 surge. This was by Christopher Jason, July 23rd. Flattening the curve for COVID has been at the forefront of health systems and health information exchanges since the turn of the new year. But with the initial surge in cases behind them, health IT leaders are now able to hit the resume button on EHR optimization progress, projects and begin to look forward. Seeing EHR optimization and new health IT projects come together in a short period of time made, uh, this is um, Brian Dixon, Director of Public Health Informatics, uh, and he's saying that there's endless possibilities in the future. So that he postulates that if we spent the same kind of energy on obesity or diabetes or congestive heart failure as we did for COVID-19, think about all that we could accomplish. And think about all that IT accomplished in the first weeks of the pandemic, the total transformation of non-clinical spaces into clinical spaces into order sets and alerts and lab orders again the constantly changing recommendations that were coming out and it could handle all of that really quickly with laser focus now what if we use that same laser focus and get our ehr straightened out love the concept think it's spot on interested to see if we could maintain that kind of momentum and i don't think we can to be honest I don't think that pace that we were working at during COVID is something that would be sustainable over long periods of time, but certainly could do a very focused optimization uh, boost and fix some big, big items that may be standing in your way. And to be honest, I, I am thinking of doing this. I do think that uh, we, our system is going live with Epic at another hospital, and I don't want to put a clunky version of Epic up in a new system. I want our system to be optimized. I want to get the order sets right. I want to get the alerts right. So I'm definitely interested in this concept of focused attention. Let's get it done quickly and move on to other things before COVID moves back into town. We happen to be very light on COVID cases at the moment. So if you're sitting there in the middle of Orange County, California right now, not so much. You're probably focusing very much on figuring out how you're going to make new hospital beds and tents in the parking lot and things like that. Uh, next article, also out of EHR Intelligence, the Sequoia Project launches an information blocking boot camp. So don't forget about this information blocking thing, the ONC interoperability rule. It has not gone away. And there is a November 2nd, 2020 deadline to comply with the ONC interoperability rule. So the Sequoia project created this boot camp. It's a free public resource to help those prepare, uh, train and help IT organizations get prepared for this thing. So for those of you who aren't quite sure what I'm talking about, originally proposed in February 2019, the ONC interoperability rule supports patients accessing and sharing their own electronic health information, allowing them the ability to coordinate their own healthcare. The rule also prohibits information blocking and aims to hold the health IT developers and EHR vendors accountable as a condition of certification. 
The Sequoia Projects at the Boot Camp will run for 13 weeks and features virtual meetings with 120-minute interactive classroom le lectures and 60-minute open office hours for more in-depth discussions. It also provides an opportunity for associates to communicate with one another about information blocking and compliance. So I don't know what your strategy is for helping to meet the rules of this program. Many of us are saying, you know, we've got our patient portal. We're just going to put the information out on the patient portal. Great idea. Yes, we have done that as well. I don't think that makes us compliant, though, with interoperability rules and information blocking. The rules state that you have to make the data available in electronic format, and what they're referring to is getting it across over an interface, an API, to the software platform of the patient's choice. And the portal may not be their choice. If they want to use, I don't know, maybe Apple HealthKit. If you're not a part of Apple HealthKit, maybe you should look at doing that. You have to expose these APIs and make it available to the patient. Personally, I'm very much relying on the vendor to tackle this. I don't think that our small community health system has the resources to go out and tackle this on our own. We need Epic, the Cerners, the large players, all Scripps and Meditech. They've got to step up and help us with this. And I would encourage you as CMIOs simply to be in touch looking to see what's going on. I'm now researching on Epic's user web. What are they doing to help us meet this by November? Because I want to be compliant. And the portal's great. And getting patients engaged in their healthcare through your patient portals is a wonderful idea. Definitely do that. But I'm not sure that that gets us entirely off of the hook. I didn't know what the Sequoia Project was, to be honest with you. And so I had to look it up. The Sequoia Project is an independent, trusted advocate for nationwide health information exchange. In the public interest, we steward current programs, incubate new initiatives, and educate our community. So it also, I also looked up and saw that they are selected by ONC to help others with this uh, interoperability rule. So exceptionally valuable initiative. If you can spend the time that they're talking about, great. Most likely there'll be someone in IT who can do this for you and really dive in. But I think we do have to start assigning resources to look at this stuff. Next article, this one is also out of EHR Intelligence by Christopher Jason, July 22nd. The Pew Charitable Trust and MedStar Health, the largest healthcare provider in Maryland and Washington, D.C., are requesting CMS and the Joint Commission make health IT safety a priority for hospitals that seek accreditation. They go on to say that hospitals, like organizations in many industries, benefit from the adoption of best practices that help improve the quality and safety of the services they offer. However, in many cases, healthcare facilities fail to use established best practices because of competing priorities regulatory demands, and other factors. A major cause of patient safety issues stem from poor EHR usability. According to a study conducted by MedStar, researchers found rough, uh, roughly 40% of EHRs reported having an issue that can potentially lead to patient harm. So I'll stop here for a second. How many of you have experienced a IT-related patient safety issue. Maybe it didn't lead to harm, but that there was a failure of some kind that 
needed to be further evaluated. Did you do a root cause analysis on it? Did you have a stand or whatever the methodology is that you use at your hospital when a patient falls or gets a caudy or gets the wrong medication? There are processes in place at your hospital that happen. They don't happen though when it's an IT related issue. Very few hospitals, I have heard of one or two that do this, but shouldn't we? Isn't, isn't IT clinical? I mean, the EHR is certainly clinical. And if it fails to generate a, an appropriate alert or notify the appropriate parties of something looking wrong, well, we depend on that EHR to do some of that work. Or what if it's over alerting? What if it's just generating noise? Well, again, the authors are saying that regulatory bodies should get involved and make sure hospitals are doing it right. Eh, I don't always like it when regulatory things have to be enacted to make this work correctly. I think as CMIOs, we own this. We are the ones who understand the impact on the clinical aspects when the EHR or other IT systems, when they don't work right. I had a buddy of mine who his hospital recently did an upgrade and they had a problem with access to the PAC system and the critical care specialist could not get access to see images that they needed to care for the patient. Is that a patient safety event? Sure it is, sure it is. Now they could see the written report and they had to rely on that and they could always go down to radiology, but at the time they weren't able to do that. They had to stay by this patient and they were unable to see the images that they needed to see in their mind to provide optimal clinical care. Was there any kind of uh, root cause analysis done on this? No, no, there's, there's not. We kind of roll with it and we just kind of move on. So think about in your system if that happens and work with the people who are doing the root cause analysis. It's usually somewhere in the performance improvement category. Nursing almost certainly has a big department devoted to this stuff. But if you went to them and said, hey, we think that the electronic health record is contributing to patient safety events and we want to start cataloging them and understanding them and applying the same methodologies so that we don't repeat the same mistakes. And if you treat these things as patient safety events and the IT colleagues who are not clinical start seeing and understanding this methodology, I think that they will start to align behind you and go, hey, what we do is important we can't screw up, take systems down, knock them offline, whatever. Those kind of oopses have clinical consequences. We need to up our game and adopt the safety culture in IT. Let's see if we've got time. Oh yeah, and they go on. There, there's probably 10 different things that they're recommending that CMS put in place. I'll just read you a few of them because I thought they were, they were pretty interesting here. So one of them, is that the hospital has an electronic visual dashboard that shows clinical decision to support dismissal rates for high-risk conditions. And the hospital has a committee that reviews this data to develop action plans for addressing identified challenges. So how many of you are looking at dismissal rates for high-risk conditions for the clinical decision support tools? Most of us are probably not. Next, the hospital has a committee with clinical and health IT expertise that re meets regularly to review order set content and structure. Most of us have this now. Thank goodness. We, we 
if your system is large enough, if you put the resources into it, you will have the people and the resources to sit down and review these order sets in, in an appropriate manner. Yes, Joint Commission already requires review of order sets. I'm not talking about the rubber stamp review here. I'm talking about actually looking at the clinical content and the way the order set is designed and seeing are people going outside of the order set to get to things because the order set's not working right. That's reviewing an order set. Next, the hospital has regular in-person training courses, online training materials, or other training processes for staff. Yeah, do you have that? Regular in-person training courses. Most of us, you get trained, you off you go, we'll give you a tip sheet for the upgrade, good luck. We don't put the resources into continuing education and training in the EMR, it's probably, it certainly is a mistake. So I'd encourage you, to look at your process and see if you can't maybe come up with that online piece. Not every doctor wants to come in person. For the, your frequent flyers, your, your hospitalists, they're always in the hospital. You know what, they might take 15 minutes during lunch and give you some time, give your trainer some time. I don't picture you doing this yourself. But developing that curriculum and making it available, absolutely putting it online, recording yourself or one of your colleagues running through a certain workflow and here's the optimal way of doing it. Absolutely, we should be doing that and building those websites that captures and holds all this information. And then here's one more, very much relates to what we were just talking about. Identify health IT related safety hazards, which are actual or potential safety issues that may harm a patient and that is necessary to reduce harm and improve the IT systems. Hospitals should have a process in place to identify these health IT hazards. Frequent testing of EHRs has been associated with greater detection of errors. Love it. Love it. And since I am well over time here, I'm going to wrap it up here. I didn't get to get through all the articles. Maybe I'll try to get this one on uh, Vanderbilt launching their, uh, what they what they call is the Clickbusters program. I really want to talk about that next time, so we will get to it. Thank you for listening to CMIO Podcast. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn, send me your ideas for shows, guests you'd like to hear from, or just to connect. And I look forward to bringing you our next episode.